Good morning. We're going to be looking at Psalm 22, as John had already mentioned. So what I'd like you to do is take your Bibles and read with me. Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you I was cast from birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax that is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O oh, you, my help, come quickly to my aid, delivering my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you, for kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Prosperity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. As we look at Psalm 22 this morning, I'd like us to look at it from the vantage point of it not being like a New Testament epistle full of doctrine, but as a song David wrote to express his deepest feelings and what he was going through. This song is almost as if it's a poem put to music. It shows us his life of suffering and praise. It was written against the backdrop of Saul, the former king who was persecuting him, and other enemies who ran after him, trying to persecute and pursue the Lord's anointed without giving up relentlessly. 
And I believe we can relate to some of these struggles as we look through this psalm. The psalm is from the first book of five in the psalms, written by David primarily in the lament, but as we go through it, we'll see how it turns also to praise. A lament, in case you're wondering, is defined as a passionate expression of grief or sorrow. It's something that came out from within him. And it was a struggle that he needed to express. So this captures the anguish and struggle in his soul throughout this psalm. It was written about a thousand years before Christ, but it's still relevant to us today. We can learn from David, even when our own prayers seem to go unanswered, when we cry out to God and we don't see anything happening. It's like God is not even there at times. While I was studying this, I was looking through the life of Martin Luther, since it was the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, and some things came out of his life that I wasn't quite aware of or just heard bits and pieces of. And it struck me as I looked through his life that his example and the things he went through echo some of the things in this psalm. And for the psalms themselves, Luther had translated and taught this in a university setting, the psalms. And it was the first book of scripture that he taught. And as he went through this, he started writing works. And the first book that he ever wrote was actually based on the psalms. So he was engrossed in in what David had been going through from his studies as well. But his life example seems more related to David's suffering this psalm, such as in 1527 in his town of Wittenberg in Germany. The Black Plague, the Black Death was spreading rapidly. Luther was there with his wife. They had a one-year-old child, and she was pregnant with the second. And in the midst of all this, he felt that it was his duty, his moral duty, to stay there and minister to the flock and not to leave not to escape for safety. So as he was doing this, following God, death seemed to surround him on every side. And as Luther watched people die in the streets and even those who had been guests in his own house, he was so heavily burdened that he couldn't eat for a week and a half. He was so deeply concerned for his wife's safety and those others around him that he started growing weaker and weaker and in a lot of despair. Luther wrote this in these words about his increasing bouts of depression, saying, I spent more than a week in death and in hell. My entire body was in pain, and I still trembled. Completely abandoned by Christ, I labored under the vacillations and storms of desperation. Until later, when this started to pass, he wrote, God began to have mercy on me. It was an answer to prayer. In his weakness, Luther found new strength in God. Or as in his own words he put, born of a deep tribulation and conquering faith. During these difficult years filled with controversy, death, and trial, Luther wrote the song that we sang earlier, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, based on Psalm 46. Like David, he had developed an unshakable trust in God through all the trials. As we'll see King David's struggles in the psalm, notice that this is both an individual as well as a national lament. As the Lord's anointed, his chosen, David sought deliverance not only for himself, but also for Israel. David in here is pouring out through this lament his suffering heart and what he's going through. So let us put ourselves in the writer's place and understand our own struggles are real when our prayers seem unanswered, remembering that we have the same God that David writes about here to rely on. From Scott's series on the Psalms, 
entitled Infinite Glory, Intimate Grace. The title of this sermon from Psalm 22 is Suffering to Glory. Here's the truth from King David's lament and praise, which we'll examine today from this psalm. No matter what difficulties we go through, we'll see King David telling us that God delivers the despairing to glorify him. And in this glory, we find God's intimate grace to the king and to us. As David unfolds his story through this psalm, we'll see the king's responses to the suffering in four stages. The first one being distance and memory in verses 1 through 5. Then we'll see despair and suffering in verses 6 through 18. Deliverance is sought in verses 19 to 21. And finally, we see delivered to glorify God in verses 22 to 31. Here we'll see how David's severe lament begins to turn to praise in the end. So let us begin with the first five verses, describing suffering as distance and memory. David felt distant from God, asking, God, why did you forsake me? Yet, he also remembered and trusted God's faithfulness as we read. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning, oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. Notice that David repeated the word trust here three times in these verses. He remembered God's faithfulness to his people, Israel, and so he was also able now to trust God for himself. Even if God seemed distant and uninvolved, not answering the prayer right away as he struggled. From these verses, we can find that unanswered prayer can lead to a feeling of distance and despair. The word forsaken used here literally means to leave destitute, as if he had nothing left, alone. And that's the way David felt. That's the way we feel sometimes. David felt God was far away with his prayers unanswered. You ever felt that God was far off from you as you pray and you don't seem to receive an answer? Or things don't seem very clear and you're wondering what's going on? Well, what do we do with that? Do we doubt? Do we trust? Or do doubt and trust? It reminds me of a story in my own life, back when I was in the military. I was stationed in Florida, and I received a phone call at the end of the day, literally at the end of the day, if I would change the upcoming assignment I had to Yokota in Japan for one in Camp New Amsterdam in a place called the Netherlands, which I said, where is that? So I had to look it up on a map. I said, oh, that's where that is. So I went home, and I prayed, and I prayed, And I prayed. And this went on for hours and hours, and I couldn't find a good resolution. I didn't know what God had planned with all this. So I didn't have any peace for going, and I didn't have any peace for not going. Finally, I said, well, God, you put this here for a reason. I know that you're sovereign. So the next morning, I called the guys I was supposed to do before 8.30 in the morning. I said, yes, I'll take it. And at that point is when I felt God's peace because it was God who was directing my path, even though I tried to plan my own ways. So from that, what can we learn? Well, sometimes God doesn't answer prayer the way we think, but he always answers it. David here writes that there's this inner turmoil 
in the midst of this apparent abandonment by God when we don't get that answer. We too can feel that God has left us on our own, that he's not answering us, or we might even wonder, are, are we separated by some unconfessed sin? Is there something else in the way? Yet for King David, in all these pressing times, all these things he's going through, there's still memories that he has of God's past deliverance, especially here in verses 4 and 5, that trust factor. So David must have been thinking about God's trustworthy character, who he was, and what he's done. How God listened, even as David's own sins had distanced the king from God. As Isaiah later spoke about in Isaiah 59, 1 and 2, where it's written, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Isaiah spoke of this separation from sin, from God, so that he doesn't even hear at times in verse 2. But if we read backwards and what it's founded on, we see in verse 1 he is reminding us that he's still able to both hear and to save. So, was David separated by sin or by some sovereign purpose? We'll go a bit further on this. Like David, we face situations where God seems far away. But are these at times of God's sovereign purpose? Are they from our own unconfessed sin that we're not dealing with? And we could wonder, what's keeping God distant from us? It's not even easy to know. We might have to wrestle with this for a long time before it becomes evident. As for the king here, though he had that turmoil of heart in the midst of abandonment or apparent abandonment, David trusted God's faithfulness in his mercy and had memories of past deliverance by his faithful God. He had replaced King Saul, who then started going after him to kill him, trying to throw spears at him and chasing him down. His own son Absalom pursued him, trying to kill him. And of course, there's the sin of Bathsheba and Uriah. He both committed adultery and murder. But in all these things, David held on to his trustworthy God. So I believe this is more a purpose of God's sovereignty here, because David, he repented when he sinned. Psalm 51 is based on his whole pouring out of his heart to God, like Scott had mentioned, you know, to make us whiter than snow. He had been forgiven. So in this process of God not answering, he starts to realize that God has some other plan. But he still has this agony in his soul as he's wrestling these issues, as described in verses 6 through 18, his despair and suffering. This section breaks down into five parts of his suffering. He was despised for trusting God. He was troubled, but still trusting. He was fiercely mocked by his enemies. He was despairingly weak through the whole process. And finally, he seemed surrounded by defeat. This was his suffering. First of all, in verses 6 through 8, they describe how David was despised for trusting. He says, I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads, saying, He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. David was despised because he told others that he trusted God. He was scorned for relying on a God who seemed far off. David tells of being mocked, laughed at, ridiculed. And since God had not delivered David yet from his troubles, the others around him thought God must either not be real or just powerless. He wasn't helping David. Just think of the times we trust God, and others may look down on us. In those times, we need to see his character and allow God to answer in his time 
and trust in his faithfulness because he is faithful. Looking further, he was also troubled but trusting according to verses 9 through 11. He says, Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you I was cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. David still relied on God's past faithfulness, but he was still conflicted too. It was a feeling of a distance from God who didn't seem to answer, yet he still looked back on God's faithfulness throughout his life, even from birth. He knew that God's hand was on him. Even though he trusted this faithful God, he was so troubled, so he kept calling to God to come near. He wanted help now. He wanted deliverance now. He didn't want to keep waiting, but he felt all alone that God had abandoned him. Then we see how the king further was fiercely mocked and threatened in the next two verses. He says, many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. David's enemies were like strong lions and Bashan bulls. He tells of how he was attacked relentlessly by his enemies, as if these bulls of Bashan had surrounded him. And the history of this area of Bashan is what's now the Golan Heights, east of the, the Jordan, is a very fertile ground. So the, the cattle, the oxen that are raised there get very strong. So this really represents a, a strong enemy, fierce and wild, that was attacking him. I mean, he felt threatened, but he was also verbally threatened, as if this roaring and hungry lion was coming at him. I mean, you'd feel threatened, too, if you saw a lion open his mouth and roar at you. I mean, I, I get these images in my mind of the old circus acts with the lion tamers there, and this lion opens his mouth this big. It's like, I don't want to be there. So he felt threatened by these antagonists, and he was mocked in that threatening way. Next, we see that he was despised until he felt utterly weakness. He said, I'm poured out like water. My bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. David became so despairingly weak, he was as if he was poured out on the ground, weak and lifeless, unable even to speak or respond. He felt like a pitcher of water that you'd take in the desert and pour in the dusty ground, and the water just disappears as it hit the ground. Inside, he felt empty. He was so weary of suffering, he was despairing, spiritually disjointed, no strength of heart left. He was unable even to find words sometimes to reply to these attacks that were coming to him. It was as if God laid him in the dust of death, like God was just allowing him to die. He felt abandoned. But finally, David looked around and saw further that he was surrounded by defeat everywhere. He said, dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them with my clothing. They cast lots. The king's enemies were like a pack of dogs all around him, biting at him, nipping at him, tearing him apart. These dogs surrounded him, waiting to devour as they bark and growl and threaten him. These evildoers are seemingly everywhere. And it says they pierced his hands and feet which is interesting because in most Hebrew texts, it actually literally says, like a lion. Some people think it may be a mistranscription because the Greek version of this, the Septuagint, says that it was dug into or pierced. But I think that really fits together because either way, 
if a lion is biting or a dog is biting and clawing at you at your feet while you're there and you can't escape, it's going to feel like that. So the whole point is he was being attacked. And others can see his bones from his emaciated condition because he was just feeling like he's dying. And they began even to gamble for his clothing. I mean, this man was a king. So they probably wanted those clothing. So they expect him to die at any time. They said, well, we can just do this. So he felt like they were just all around him trying to take everything away from him and let him die. But despite this overwhelming suffering, David continues to pray for the deliverance he sought. David holds on to God's faithfulness. And he cries out for help. As we read in verses 19 through 21, he says, But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. So we see how he calls out to God in the midst of his troubles, and as he sought deliverance, he offered prayer in the thick of things. David prayed in the middle of these intense struggles, holding on to God's faithfulness, despite the situations he was in. He begged God to come near for relief from these attacks. But the fears from dogs and lions and oxen, oh my, the attacks just came strong and from many sides. And yet, in all these sufferings, David still trusted God for deliverance. He couldn't see it, but he trusted him. David had this enduring faith that wouldn't give up because of God's proven character, even when nothing seemed to change. And since God is faithful, David was finally delivered to glorify God. His praises progressed from God's answer to himself and out to the world. We'll see that in these four praises here in this last section. The first is praise testifies to answered prayer. Then we'll look at how praise in the congregation comes into play. Then praise to the sovereign king. And finally, praise for God's finished work. Let's look at each of these praises in turn. First, David's praise testifies to answered prayer. God comes near. At last, David finds relief as God hears. He says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. The lament of the king ends as God draws near. David begins his claim of trust in God to his enemies. He began by calling for a distant God to draw near, to hear his pleas for help. Now he has been heard. So he tells those around him of God's work, God's chosen people, Israel here, who know and fear him. He calls on them to praise and glorify God for what he has done. Secondly, the second praise in verses 25 through 26, we see that God praises God in the congregation. David now moves from his internalized joy to his externalized sharing. That relief and joy that welled up in him from God's deliverance, this had to be shared. We read, from you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. The king's internal joy is then shared in this Thanksgiving meal. After the peace offering with vows, the Jews would have a corporate feast together to celebrate. 
This kind of reminds us in a way of the Lord's Supper where we share our remembered blessings in Christ and what he's done for us. We also see David's renewed obedience by these promised vows that he said he would keep. So this moves then to the king's praise where he praises God, the sovereign king, in verses 27 and 28. His praise looked out from the deliverance from the problems and then looked up to the glory where it was due to Almighty God. Looking at verses 27 and 28, it's written, All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you, for kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. David looked up to give glory due to God. He tells how the eyes from all those around will be turned to God alone. David acknowledged God's sovereignty with praise, and so called all the nations to turn to God and to worship him. His focus now has moved from the congregation to the world. The sovereign Lord should receive all the glory everywhere. Finally, the psalmist explains in verses 29 and 31, praise for God's finished work. He says, all the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people not yet born, but yet unborn, that he has done it. God's work is to be proclaimed to the world throughout time. His finished work of righteousness should be proclaimed to the world. This is David's highest praise for his deliverer. God's work deserves this eternal praise that glorifies him for his work, because David is among those all who go down to the dust. We all die. And we all face God for judgment. He has done it, demonstrates his finished work for David. The end result is worship and praise, serving God even to a people not yet born. In the future, beyond David, we see God's work here reaches further than just David. So looking back at Psalm 22, we've seen how God delivers the despairing to glorify him. We looked at these four stages in his suffering to glory. We've seen the distance and memory. We've seen the despair and the suffering. Deliverance being sought. And finally, delivered to glorify God. But wait, there's more. This isn't just about King David. David's suffering points us to Christ's suffering from the anointed king, the God's anointed, the Messiah. David is a precursor, a type of Christ suffering here. David didn't literally have his bones out of joint like Christ did or have his nails and feet pierced, hands pierced by nails. He may not have even had his clothing gambled for. There's prophetic suffering here. This is why many refer to this psalm as the fifth gospel. Jesus suffered so we could glorify God in him. And now we can proclaim this finished work, his finished work on the cross to the world. On the screen are references there to Psalm 22 that we see in Matthew 27. Many of us are familiar with these. I won't read them all, but I will say that as you look through them, you'll see how they gambled for his clothing, how they mocked and ridiculed him, saying, oh, let God deliver him, just like they did to Jesus. And finally, Jesus saying, why have you forsaken me? We see these bookends of suffering and the finished work on the cross in Matthew 27, 46, and John 19, 30, which points us back to the first and last verses of Psalm 22. Matthew 27 talks about 
again, quoting Jesus, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? Why don't you answer? That's our state without Christ. And John 19.30, he finally says, it's finished. It's all by his righteousness, what he has done, his completed work. In the psalm, the Hebrew, it is done, is the word asa, meaning accomplished or done or finished. And in John, it is finished, teleo, which usually is translated as completed or done as well, which goes to prove that this is what he was saying. God did it all. He finished it in Christ, this deliverance, this salvation. This lament of David then is one Jesus took on eternally for us. And when we think about that, that his finished work of deliverance is from our suffering to his suffering on the cross. It's his righteousness alone, his work alone, nothing we can earn. In response, this is what we're called out for, to give him glory, to give him the credit where it's due. It's not anything that we can do. We who were dead in sin have been saved and made alive by Christ's work alone. We see this hope of deliverance that was once hidden is now revealed as it was foretold. In 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12, we read concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be used, search your search and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicated when he predicted the sufferings of Christ in them and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which the angels long to look. This psalm foretold of Christ's suffering and glory. And as Jesus told this to his disciples in Luke 24, 44, after the resurrection, he explained that the words that he spoke to them when he was still with them, everything that was written about him, he explained from the law of Moses, the prophets, and the psalms. I am sure he sat there and explained this psalm very well to them. These are the things that men sought from Scripture and angels longed to figure out, to see, to know. The sufferings of Christ resulted in glory to his name. And these glories in the gospel were told to us so that we should praise and glorify Jesus Christ by telling this glorious gospel to others. You see in verse 22, as it's quoted in Hebrews 2, 10 through 12, that we must tell forth his saving suffering as his brethren. He says, for it is, was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies, and those who are sanctified, all have one source. And that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Jesus suffered perfectly in our place so that we can glorify God in him. He's not a God far off. He's near. He was rejected instead of us. So we answer to proclaim his finished work on the cross. Here, when the author of Hebrews quotes from verse 22 of the psalm, the context is of salvation by Christ's work. Jesus suffered and now calls us brothers, and we in turn should share this praise to others. So finally, from 2 Corinthians 4, 7 to 15 that we heard earlier, we see the hope as our despair turns to his glory. Our hope and suffering are by his righteousness for his glory. He says, we have this treasure in jars of clay 
to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body of the, the death of Jesus. So that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. He says it's for your sake. So that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Though once alienated from God's hearing, his suffering and his righteousness alone reconciled us to God forever for his glory. Like David, we remember God's faithfulness while we suffer. He heard our prayer and turned despair to his glory, and he will do that. We are not defeated who are in Christ. Instead, we thank and praise him before others. So what have we learned today? Psalm 22 has shown us in suffering to glory that God has delivered and will deliver us from despair to glorify him. This is the gospel, what we were called to by grace. The suffering servant delivers us and brings us near from our distance from God by his deliverance. God's own righteousness has finished his own work. David's experiences point us to Jesus Christ, so we should glorify and point others to him. Suffering to glory, this is the gospel. His suffering for us and for his glory that we share in. So in closing, remember that just as the psalmist trusted and foretold God's deliverance, so we should tell forth Christ's delivering work on the cross. To God, we should offer thankful praise in return to our brothers and sisters in the congregation, to the ends of the earth, and throughout all generations, throughout time. Amen? Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for the examples in your word, like King David, as well as others like Martin Luther through time, and Martin who wrote, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, a bulwark never failing. You're our helper amid those, the flood of these mortal ills that are prevailing against us. We thank you for hearing our prayers in times of despair as you told and foretold through King David so we can tell forth your work on the cross and your glory in it. We thank you for delivering we the despairing to glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen.